0: Planning a trip like that and then executing on the trip is actually a lot like starting a business. I look at a business as like a little adventure you do, stuff goes wrong, you plow through that. So there's a lot of parallels for me between travel and, and business. And, you know, it's all just, you know, living, which kind of gets back to your original question.
1: Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. I created this podcast and the School for Good Living to share what I've learned, and to keep exploring the question, what does it mean to live a good life, and how can we do it? Despite my privilege, I lived for decades in a pretty dark place, and I know that living is often a painful, difficult, and messy business. But I also know that it can be wonderful beyond imagination and that it's a skill at which we can improve. That's why every episode is a conversation with an author who's an expert regarding spirituality, health, relationships, work, rest, and play, or money. I also ask my guests about their creative habits, routines, and mindsets and what they've done to get their books written, published, and read. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Are you looking for more balance, more productivity, more enjoyment from your work? Would you like to get more out of life, reduce office politics and burnout for yourself and your team? If you answered yes to any of those questions, I think you'll be interested in today's guest. His name is Stefan Arstel. He wrote a book called The Five-Hour Workday, Live Differently, Unlock Productivity and Find Happiness. But this isn't a book full of theory. Instead, this is a book sharing his experience as Stefan has grown his company one that Mark Cuban invested in back in 2012. Mark made $150,000 investment for 30% of Stefan's company, which has since produced more than $40 million in revenue. It's called Tower Beach Club. They produce surfboards, stand-up paddleboards, skateboards, e-bikes. They even have an event venue in San Diego. But what I love about Stefan and his work is that he questions everything. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about the Fair Labor Standards Act. But if you know about it, back in 1940, Congress passed a law making the 40-hour workweek a law. In that same way that the 40-hour workweek was created, Stefan asks, why not have a five-hour workday? It's something that he implemented. He says that in every day after he and his team implemented this, they were able to accomplish in just two to three hours what used to take them eight to ten. He writes, if you reduce the number of hours you have to dedicate toward a task, it magically leads you to thinking of new ways to get it done. So, Stefan has a lot of interesting insights, a lot of great experience, some of which, a lot of which he challenges you and invites you to apply in your own business. You can learn more about Stefan and his work at towerbeachclub.com, at fivehourworkday.com, and you can find him on all the socials, Tower Beach Club on all the socials. With that, I hope you enjoy and benefit from this conversation with my new friend, Stefan Arstel. Oh, I forgot to tell you this Stefan has written for and been featured in many of the leading business publications, including Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Inc., Forbes, The Washington Post, and so on. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Stefan Arstel. Stefan, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on, really. I appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure. Will you tell me, please, what's life about?
0: I think life is about just, uh, you know, experiencing stuff, seeing the world. I mean, it's it's like an adventure kind of. I think
1: so. I think so. And that answer, you know, coming from you and what you've built has a different ring to it for me than just, I don't know if one of my high school buddies had said that, (laughs) (laughs) right? (laughs) And part of it is you talk about adventure. I know you spent some time in Australia long before this, right? Well, you talk about what motivated you and what was your experience there? Like, what did you learn?
0: Yeah, that was my first real, like, long-term travel, like, backpacker-type like travel stuff. And I did it with uh, three college buddies. And, you know, growing up in the U.S., in uh, above Seattle, small town, you know, you get a certain view of the world. And then when you go out into the world, and Australia was an interesting place because we were meeting Australians, but we were also on this backpacker tour where there was – it was mostly, like, Europeans. And really people from all over the world, but primarily Europeans. So you just get a much different perspective hanging out with those people for – and we were there for, like, three months – So that sort of opened my mind up to, you know, the world of travel, but also the, you know, hand in hand with travel is just stuff going wrong and, you know, dealing with stuff going wrong. And after a while, just learning to accept that stuff goes wrong, you just plow through it and, and, you know, planning a trip like that and then executing on the trip is actually a lot like starting a business. It's like a biz. I look at a business as like a little adventure. You do stuff goes wrong. You plow through that, and uh, so there's a lot of parallels for me between travel and and business. And you know, it's all just you know living, which kind of gets back to your original question.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I don't know if your experience is the same, but for me, it's interesting how when it's happening, it's just going wrong or it's crap. But after you know, with the benefit of perspective, then it's adventure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. This is something that I learned from travel. And it's funny, you know, when I was on Shark Tank, I'm sort of known for the worst pitch in the history of Shark Tank that still landed the deal. And, we, you know, we went out there and I, I forgot my lines and it went really bad. But in that moment, I was, you know, you're kind of in your head. I'm thinking, oh man, you know, like six million people are going to see this. This is going to be horrible. But then I'm sort of thinking back to my, you know, travels and thinking every time something goes really bad on a, on a vacation or some trip, that's the most memorable part. Yeah. So that, and once you can flip that in your mind, you're good. And i have been able to do that years before because I'd been an entrepreneur for maybe uh, 10 years before I was you know, on the, um, that show. And so when that happened, I was just like, Oh yeah, this is going to be that time I really remember. So you just screwed up in front of six million people, <laughs> but don't even worry about it that's uh, yeah. and once you can do that as an entrepreneur, you kind of become bulletproof, so you know, like the, the recession hits here or the uh, you know the coronavirus just you just take those things in stride after a while
1: yeah yeah, that's right. it's uh evolve or die, you know, rise above it. <laughs> One of my teachers he talks about all of life is dynamic movement. you either rise above it or you get crushed by it yeah so that's
0: and a lot funny. of times when it's happening like you're saying all you see is sort of chaos and you see the bad side of it. But, you know, the flip side of that is there's opportunity in chaos, you know?
1: Yeah. You know, I do want to ask you about the Shark Tank experience and, and what's happened since then. But before we go there, I want to ask you about a fish you caught when you were a young man that had, I don't know that it changed the trajectory of your life, but reading your book, it sounded like maybe it did.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this. It was, I'd fished with my father, like, you know, my entire childhood. I mean, he was the big fisherman and he just sort of drug us three kids along and, you know, and like a hardcore fisherman where we'd go out, you know, four in the morning and he'd stay out for 12 hours, you know, he, he, he loved fishing. Right. And so we would just sort of, you know, be seasick and, you know, sunburnt, and make it through the day. And I think my, my brothers had stopped even going out fishing after a while, but I was in, I was out of uh, grad school. And I was in my first job and I would come home for the summer and dad would want to go out fishing. So I would, you know, go along with him on this trip. I went along with him. It was out to a place called Nia Bay on the uh, sort of on the very tip of Washington state there. One of the best fishing places in the world. Anyway, uh, and we caught this just massive fish. It was 58 pound salmon, which if you're a salmon fisherman, you know, is a huge fish. This is the biggest fish in the state of Washington in 20 years. And the biggest fish I had caught before that was probably 25 pounds. So this is two and a half times i mean it's just like this is like winning the lottery it's just a freak accident you know and uh so anyway we uh, we caught that fish we brought it in it's sort of an indian village out there where you where you fish at and you know they were like holy cow because that's how they make their money it's a tourist town for the fishing people that come out there so they saw this fish is like a prize fish so you know we were taking pictures of the fish like at the little fish stand and then, you know, it was a small town. So pretty soon, like news was all over the town about this massive fish that this kid had caught. And uh, they offered me $500 for the fish, you know. And I, I was like, well, let me, let me think about that. We went home. We uh, decided, Me you and know, my dad sort of talked about We decided we would negotiate for mortgage for our, uh, moorage for life for our boat in their harbor. We'd give them the fish for free, but then they, we could, you know, come here and park our boat here. And they'd have to hang the fish up in the, like their little bait and tackle shop that was the deal. And they said, yeah, yeah, we'll totally do that. The next day we learned they would have paid $5,000 for that. No. Fish. <laughs> and this is when I was out of college. So $5,000 was a lot. And I had just started my uh, first business, maybe six months prior to that on the side. And I was still doing my day job, but that business was kind of taking off and it was getting to that decision point of, should you jump off and you know, do your own business or not? And my wife's time was pregnant and our baby was about six months away. So even more stress to like go out yeah. on your own. But yeah. I caught that fish. I took that as a sign. Like yeah. that's just I mean, it's a it's a one in ten million, you know, odds to hit that. Wow. And I'm like, that's a sign. I'm I'm gonna start this business. I, you know, I think I like mailed in my resignation letter from the trip.
1: Wow. <laughs> and that's said, amazing. I am
0: I'm gonna do my own thing. I'm gonna give it a try. And I've been an entrepreneur ever since.
1: That is great. And does do you still have the mortgage up there for the boat?
0: Uh, well, the the Indian tribes they sort of like changed chiefs, and uh, so that's kind of gone away. They have a picture of the fish in the shop, okay. but I don't know where the fish disappeared to. Uh, but they they would take that fish and they would take it around to uh, like their trade shows or fishing shows, and so maybe maybe it's on the road or something like that. But no, wow. the mortgage thing we just kind of let that go. But right
1: on. <laughs> well, you know, you just talked about your dad being a fisherman. I understand your dad was also a doctor and an entrepreneur. Sounds like a pretty pretty interesting guy and one of your biggest teachers. What did did you learn from him that's influenced your career?
0: Yeah, well, he's technically a doctor, but I think when people think of an optometrist, they don't think, that's not a real doctor. And then but it's not a real like doctor too, because you basically, they sell glasses, they sell glasses and contact. That's about half of the business. The other half is like uh, seeing patients and doing stuff like that. It would be like if you're going to a doctor and they they sell like bone splints and that's, you know, the good money they make by selling you, you know, product in addition to their services. So I sort of learned through that. It was like, you know, he, he was basically an entrepreneur struggling with stuff. I think he went bankrupt at one point, you know, just just watching him go from one building to the next, have to build this out, staff problems and, and stuff like that. And it was just sort of an interesting thing to see. So I think I learned just by being in that environment.
1: Yeah. Maybe gave you a sense of what to expect as you embarked on your own journey, perhaps.
0: Yeah. 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 And you also
1: have a friend or had a friend when you were younger, Mason. Right, I wonder, you talk about him being influential early in your book, and I, I realize here, let me, let me interject about the book because we haven't, we haven't even talked about the book yet. Of course, the listener will hear it in the intro, but you've written a book called The Five-Hour Workday, Live Differently, Unlock Productivity, and Find Happiness. Right, And in the book, as any, any author of a book that I would want to read, goes beyond just telling me what to do or even why I should do it, but shares from his or her experience You know, and you share some experience as a young boy and your friend Mason and how you learned from him something that changed you. Will you talk about who he was and what you've learned?
0: Yeah. So he was uh, sort of one of my first best friends, uh, really, when I was a a kid, like all the way through, uh, we we went to kindergarten together. I don't know if we knew each other before that. I think uh, we were kind of in the same town and we went to kindergarten in town. And, you know, through first grade, and you don't have a huge you know, friend circle at that point. And in second grade, he ended up getting uh, leukemia. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, he just like threw up blood on the bus one day. And then, you know, like a week later, we find out he's got leukemia. And then, you know, a couple months later, he's out of school, a couple months later, he comes back, he's got no hair. And I'm still sort of seeing him outside of school in all of this. So I sort of witnessed him, you know, go through that sort of child leukemia as like a friend. But you know, I'm perfectly fine over here. He's going through like all of this, you know, crap on this side. And uh, he, he basically just had to fight it. And I think today your prognosis, if you got leukemia as a kid, is much better. But back then, this was in the, you know, the late 70s, it was not pretty good. I mean, this was kind of a death sentence and he kind of knew that was coming at, you know, the age of Seven, uh, maybe eight, um, and they said, you know, you basically you got a year to live or two years to live or something like that. And but just sort of, you know, riding shotgun in that experience, and at the same time that my life was going, you know, pretty good. Both of us had, um, well, my, I had my parents divorced at the time, and his he, his parents were married, but then his father died, you know, in like a freak accident. He was like a, a crab fisherman up in Alaska, and he died on like a three wheeler accident. And so he went through that. So the kids got cancer. Then his dad dies, and then his mom's left. You know, a, a single mom. She ends up having to marry sort of, uh, you know, an asshole uh, like a stepfather, and he's having to deal with that. I have the sort of the asshole stepfather on my side too. So we we shared a lot of those things. And then uh, my parents got my stepfather and my mom got divorced, and then they my original parents ended up remarrying together. So my like, life came, came back together really in a tight little bow,
1: yeah, right That's like every every kid, every child of divorce that's their dream, right?
0: <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, and as a kid, you think you kind of willed that into uh, you know fruition, you know so I'm thinking, well, I'm just making you know stuff happen over here on this side, and his life is just you know more and more deteriorating, and then he had to switch schools, and you know it was just sort of there's no good way to end cancer, I think it was for yeah. you know painful experience. he was breaking a lot of bones, but through the whole thing. Like, he was the most chipper kid, like, ever, you know, and he was very knowledgeable. He was still learning. He didn't just sort of give up on life. He just said, like, you know, my adventure is just a little shorter, you know, than everybody else's. And so, that was sort of a really interesting thing to see, like, a perspective. Yeah. They say if you if you ever get cancer yourself and you make it through that, it totally changes your life perspective, right? Yeah. Well, I didn't actually go through that, but I, it, was, it was about as close as you could to doing that. By seeing that and seeing him sort of, you know, and my other friends were complaining about something stupid, you know, a little issue that was sort of a non-issue. This mm-hmm. kid, you know, died when he was 13. And he was like, uh, you know, a champion sort of the whole way through. And to me, that was sort of inspiring. At the same time, it sort of showed me that like, we're in a world of people that sort of complain about stuff that they really shouldn't be complaining about. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of the correct way to live is just say, You know, life is short and you should just enjoy it while you're here. We all basically have a death sentence, you know, some are just longer than others and you really don't know when your time's up. And I think if you approach life that way, that's, uh, it's a much better way to live. And I I think that is exactly what he taught me is just, here's how you should live, you know?
1: Wow. What, I mean, on the one hand, what a tragedy, but also what a gift, like how beautiful, you know, to get, to really get that at a young age. So
0: I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Time is is relative. So you can say like he had like a really rough life, but maybe he had just amazing life and it was just shorter, you know? Yeah,
1: for sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, let me ask you now, let me ask you now about the Shark Tank experience because I understand, and I did, I Googled that, by the way, I Googled worst Shark Tank pitches ever. (laughs) And what I learned was there's a whole bunch of really crappy ones, of course, that never got funded. But yours, I couldn't find yours. So you, I don't think you need to stress too much. <laughs> it, didn't, it wasn't on page one of Google. <laughs> That's good news. Yeah.
0: It's been yeah, a few so, years because we were on in uh, season three. I think they're in season 10 or 11 now. So hopefully so we've, got, like, we've got drowned it out.
1: Yeah. Like 2011 or 2012, something, something
0: like that. 20, 2012 was when it aired. We actually pitched in 2011. T- uh, There's okay. like a nine month uh, lapse between when, it, when we pitch and when you air back then.
1: Yeah. So your pitch was for stand-up paddle boards. Is that right? Yeah. Tower and
0: tower paddleboards.
1: Tower yes. paddle boards. And you Cuban ended up investing in your company 30% for one hundred and fifty dollars Yep. And you have since generated more than $30 million. More than forty
0: forty million now.
1: More than forty million now. Congratulations, by the yeah. way. Thank that, you. It's been it's awesome.
0: been a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's awesome. And you've not only created a successful business, but you are advancing ideas, which not every capitalist does. Many people seem content to go to work, find a need and fill it, you know, make a profit margin, whatever. And nothing wrong with that. But I'm particularly intrigued by those who are encouraging us to find more intelligent or better ways to live and work. And I believe that you're doing that. And it seems that one of your primary vehicles for that. I know you speak a lot and you write a number of articles, but your book, as I've mentioned, the five hour workday, live differently, unlock productivity and find happiness. Why did you write this book? Who did you write it for? What did you want it to do for them?
0: Yeah. And I think the book is just a larger part of this. Like earlier, you talked about how my father sort of influenced what I, what I do. You know, he was an optometrist, so he saw it was this business of helping people. He honestly wasn't in it to just make a ton of money. I mean, he wanted to make enough money to, you know, have a nice fishing boat, and, you know, nice house and vacations, whatever that. But he really was not motivated by that. And he was almost like, you know, disgusted by people that were just purely motivated by that. And I remember one time he, he said to me, and this was just in passing, just driving down the street. He said something to the effect of like, any asshole can be a millionaire. I mean, and he was, he was talking to me because I was talking about starting a business or doing something like that. Right. And that was his exact quote. Any asshole can be a millionaire. And there was this sort of indignation that I would try something uh, for the, for the sake of doing it for money. And what he was, I mean, the, the underpinning of that, or if I read between the lines was he was saying like, look, you kids are talented. I've put you in a position to do this. He's like, don't, don't waste your talent on just trying to make money. Mm-hmm. He's like, you can do that in your sleep. He's like, do that and contribute. Because essentially, is what he was what he was saying. And I don't think he meant it to be this like really, like important you know thing to tell me. But I remember hearing that, and that sort of guided me in the businesses that I go in. And the book was part of it. But even the businesses I've done, the first business I did was uh dot It was a poker chip company, which I actually got a lot of flack for because people are like oh, you're, uh, you know, supporting gambling and this and and all of that. And I'm like, no, I sell people home poker chips. So friends can get together with their buddies in the garage and, you know, play cards and, you know, drink beer and have fun and -hmm. human interaction. That's a, that's a huge part of life. I think most people, like they don't really understand how important that is. Now that we're in this pandemic, I think people are really starting to understand that. And when we come out of this pandemic, I think people are going to have a new appreciation for that. Just the simple thing of getting together with friends to play cards, right? How important that is. So when I started that business, it was like, I can create a business that will actually improve people's lives, right? Those are the only kind of business that I want to do, you know, from then on. And the next uh, business was a stand-up paddleboard business. That's the one I went on Shark Tank for, started in 2010. And a buddy of mine had a saying, he's like, there's no downside to surfing, And I was never a really good surfer, but he's like, you know, you go out, you get fit, you get a, you get a suntan. uh, The chicks think you're cool. You're, you're getting fit. Like there's just no downside. There's, it's, there's no like uh, environmental, uh, you know, aside from like foam surfboards, I guess if they throw them in the dump, but the activity of it and it's cheap, you buy the surfboard, there's no lift ticket, anything like that. He's like, there's no downside. It, this absolutely improves everybody's life. If I could teach everybody to surf, that would improve everybody's life. Right. And paddleboarding was basically uh, another version of surfing. That's kind of how I learned it in the waves. And I was like, man, I, I mean, everybody should do this. And then I sort of realized it was more like kayaking, where you can do it on rivers and lakes. So it was, you know, 1% of the population, or probably half of 1% of the population, will even venture out into the surf, could be considered surfers. But with paddleboards, that's a much larger, you know, you're probably tracking 25, 30% of the population you know, that's maybe a hundred million people or something like that, that you can introduce this to, they're out in nature, they're getting tan, they're getting fit, you know, they're doing an activity with their their friends and family. Like that's a way to improve people's lives is to make yeah. that product. And I think in the business world today, you see a lot of people just doing business to make money, you know, like a payday lending or something like that. There's these predatory businesses that come around because there's really good money in that. Right. Yep. And it's like, that's to me, that is that is a malady, that's a cancer really uh, on, on society, is these people that have the ability to make businesses, they have, they have a skill, they have a natural talent, and they should use that skill for good. And if on the, uh, on the whole, if more people that have that skill use it for, for good, society sort of thrives. And if on the other side, if more of those people use it, you know, just to sort of line their own pockets, or even at the expense of other people, which mm-hmm. is, Commonplace, and it's it's considered like acceptable because you know stockholder share value is the uh, you know the point of a a corporate entity is what everybody will tell you, and that is the thinking, and that justifies you know like stepping on people to uh, you know for capitalistic means. So, and I am at heart a capitalist. I believe you can uh, make money by creating good things, and you get rewarded for for making a good contribution. But at the same time, you can do that with good stuff. Yeah, Um, you know, then latest. Company we've started is Tower Electric Bikes. That's a that's a whole another uh, business that is life changing for people. There's the the eco side of it, which is okay. It's better than you know driving around fossil fuel cars. But to me, if somebody gets on an electric bike, their eyes go wide and they say, "Holy cow! Like I can ride this thing like 50 miles. Like I can do a bike trip with my you know, my son and go downtown." in one trip and I'm not sweating, that's that's just crazy to me. So when people ride an electric bike, it absolutely makes their life better. They don't have to worry about parking. So those are the types of businesses that I do. And your question really was about the five-hour workday book, but here's how that all that ties in. So we were running the, the paddleboard business, and we had, in 2014, we were named the number one fastest-growing company in San Diego, and we were, the only money we brought in was Cuban's uh, $150,000 and we were a five-person team at that time. when We did five million in revenue, and then the next year we were number two thirty-nine on the Inc. 500 of America's fastest-growing companies. And we're basically a surf company in San Diego. And you know, when we won that award for the fastest-growing. Like, people are like, what? Like, there were all these venture funded biotech companies, something like this. And then there's this idiot with a surf company that is somehow the fastest growing company. And I'm like, yeah, we've got like an efficient team. We're a direct to consumer. We're using the, you know, e commerce. It was nothing, you know, earth shattering at that yeah. time.
1: And, and this is, I think, the year. Is this the year that Bezos mentioned you in his letter to stockholders at Amazon?
0: That was, I think that was 2016, was the, the year of his letter. But he might have been talking about the previous year or something. But it was all around that same time. Yeah, so I think 2015 or 16 was the height of our revenues. But in 2015, and that was the year that we were on the Inc. 500. You know, it just sort of occurred to me, okay, now we've got a pretty good company, a good good start here. I want to make this a big company. Like, I want to, have you know, make a dent. How do we take this you know five million dollar company and make it a hundred million dollar company so I started reading a lot of you know books about branding and stuff like that and how do you what and I read one book and it was like a weird weird title it was called like what great brands do very to the point right and it was analyzing these brands like you know Southwest Airlines and maybe Tesla was in it I don't remember at the time but it was and there were like seven rules of what great brands do these great enduring brands. And they were kind of uh, contrarian views. One of them was they don't give back. Uh, they don't give back to society. Like they don't, you know, like not Tom shoes type things where they sell shoes and then they give a shoe to everybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Because, and Apple was one of these companies, because they don't believe they need to give back because what they're creating is what they're giving to society. Yeah. Like Southwest Airlines was, we're making, you know, the ability to travel about the country be about the same price as traveling on a Greyhound bus that is making society better. So it's not like we need to run our airline and then do uh, some charity on the side here. It's not that yeah. they don't do those charity things too, yeah. but that's not what drives them, right? They don't, yeah. they don't feel they don't have to give back because what they do is uh, the giving back.
1: Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but please? it just reminds me, last year I interviewed Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water. Yep. And he talks about how he doesn't like the term give back because what's implicit in that is that you've taken something. So just like sure. what you're saying is when you're operating and you're serving people, that is your give,
0: right? Yeah, and charity water is just a, a charity, right? They're not; yeah. they don't have another mission, and then they got this sort of side side thing. So that is his thing. Yeah. They're, so we're
1: talking about the five hour the five hour workday and how this is being a good capitalist.
0: Yeah. So a uh, part of what these great brands did is they lived their brand, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, okay, what is really our brand? We're a stand up paddleboard company. That says, you know, work hard and cut out early and go out paddleboarding and enjoy your life. Like, you know, uh. don't be that person behind the desk. Go out and paddleboard. This, this is what we're saying in our marketing, yeah. right? Well, we're a startup and we're working these these hours and I got these kids and I'm not paying them very much and they're working around that around the clock. Um, we're startup, and I was like, man, when we're two blocks from the beach, we never go to the beach in the afternoon. I'm like, we need to live our brand, so. And what would our brand look like? And I'm literally reading this book on my patio and watching all these people sort of like two and o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, this is actually my life. I cut out of the office whenever the hell I want to, but I don't let my employees do that. But mm-hmm. what if you did that with an entire you know, company? And of course I'd read uh, Tim Ferriss's four hour work week book, right? Yep. And a lot of the principles and how I would live the last and work the last you know five or 10 years has, has been based on that and you're sort of, automating a lot of things, outsourcing stuff, how to be like hyper-efficient and use like productivity tools of the the modern world. Mm -hmm. I was using that. My company was using that. That's why we were able to, with that small team, have such successful growth. But I was like, you know what we need to do? We need to sort of go all in and just sort of stake our brand on this and say, this is what we believe in. We believe the world has changed. And two things about the world have changed. And one is, you know, globalization, has made things cheaper for people because yeah. all of the middlemen have been, you know, disintermediated. That's why a direct-to-consumer paddleboard company I can sell you and then ship you a paddleboard for half the price that you can buy that in a retail store because those distribution channels are broke and they've been broke for 20 years. And this is all coming, you know, to a head. And you, you're seeing now with the, the coronavirus now like shot this forward another 10 years. And so, so that part of the world has changed. The problem is that. It, with that change of globalization, what's happened is companies have just sort of taken the extra profit and consumers still kind of pay the, the same amount. And yeah. you're seeing that even today as, you know, Google and Amazon become these very powerful middlemen, they're now taking 50% um, and this is really why we got away from Amazon and we've had a sort of revenue hit the last few years, is it doesn't make sense to give Amazon 50% of the revenue of a product that somebody buys. Like that's insanity. We don't actually need Amazon to deliver you a paddleboard. You know? yeah. So the middlemen have popped back up and we're almost back to like retail again. And who's absorbed all of the profits? The corporations. And that's why you have Amazon being, you know, the $2 trillion or $1 trillion, you know, corporation now. So the world has changed there. But on the other side is productivity has changed. We have gone through essentially another industrial revolution in the mm-hmm. information age. And it's, an you know, an industrial revolution of the mind. Um, And when I started looking sort of at how we were working, it was like, well, why are we working this sort of weird day here? Like, I just sort of go in, get my work done, and cut out of there. And sometimes I'll work seven days a week like that. And I'm like, why do I work like that? Why does everybody else work differently? So the five-hour workday was essentially just an experiment. There's no magic bullet there. But I said, well, if we we start at like, you know, eight o'clock, and we go just work five hours straight through, eight to one. No lunch. We're gonna get rid of lunch because there's just a lot of wasted lunch. First, you got like an hour of you know somebody at lunch, and then you have the commute back and forth to lunch, and then you have the thinking about where you're gonna go to lunch, and then after lunch, you have the food coma, right? Yeah. So I'm like, we're not even working this eight-hour day at the time. We were working like nine to five, so with an hour lunch. It was only a seven-hour day, actually. So I'm like, I'm not even losing anything by going to a five-hour day because we've eliminated all the questions and the waste around lunch. So I was looking at this from a very capitalistic viewpoint, right? And how can I renegotiate and give my employees sort of the lifestyle that I have? Like, if you get in there and you head down work and then get out of there, you don't need to like hang around the office, be the last one out of the parking lot to impress me, get your work done, let it prove with your productivity. So that was what we came up with was just 8am to 1pm straight through. And when I told everybody this, I said, we're going to try this for three months. And it was like, I think May or June of that year. That was 2015. And I said, so I'm going to basically give you your life back. You're going to walk out the door at 1 o'clock every day, and then you get your weekends off just the same as you do now. You're going to have basically a better life, than most, better work week than most people's vacation weeks because you live here in San Diego. You're walking out the door at 1 o'clock. Now, on the other side of this, if you can't figure out how to be as productive or more productive than you are now, I'm going to fire you, and we're going to find somebody who can because we're going to build a company of all these like, you know, superhuman like workers, because I had a few of them in my company at the time. And I mean, these people were just working at three times the speed of the other people. And I just said, I just want people like that. Yeah. And, and I want to be able to reward people like that. Because right now I was rewarding them and I was giving them, you know, oh, 20% more pay or something like that, completely unfair system. And so that was the experiment. And we did it for three months, and, and it worked so well. I mean, productivity really didn't go off. Our revenues went up fifty percent that year. I was like, "Let's just stay with it." So we did, and we stayed with it uh, full time for about two years. Wow,
1: is it something that you still observe, or do you observe seasonally, or how does it work within your company today?
0: There were, I mean, there were like any experiment in, in a startup. There were unforeseen, um, you know, problems. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were things that we didn't anticipate that would win well and things that, that went bad. Like the productivity really didn't drop off at all. And we changed everything. And we're, while we're an internet company, we had a retail store. So the retail store, hours shrank to eight to one. Uh, we only answered the phone eight to one. The warehouse guys, I mean, when they heard this, they're just like, well, it's, it's fine for you guys that are staring at a computer screen. You're not doing anything anyways. It's like, we have to ship the same number of packages and probably more because we're growing this year. And, uh, but nope they had to shrink that too. And they did a different, they did 10 to three because um, those guys like to surf in the morning. And also we couldn't get the UPS truck to pick up before like 2.30 or something like that. So, but they were in a different building. And so, but they just figured, everybody figured out how to work uh, at a faster clip. And using the existing tools we were using, sometimes identifying new tools, you you got rid of the waste and uh, people basically started to, you know, identify these productivity tools and how they could work faster. You know, earlier I was talking about the two sides of the world that have changed. And the one side of the world is, you know, globalization has made stuff cheaper for people to buy. You get rid of all the middlemen. the other side is that we can, and all of my entrepreneurial peers are a thousand percent more productive than we were 20 years ago. Oh yeah. And we're, we're still working the eight hour day. And if I, and I, I think I talked about this in the book a little bit, but I used to go into my mom's office. She managed a bank, like a credit union. And I would go into her office. She had a typewriter on her desk that she would, this was in the, uh, you know, the eighties. And she would type letters to people and put them in a, an envelope and put a stamp on them and send them off. She, she's working in a bank, right? I mean, she's got some kind of a computer on her desk, but it's not really a computer you can do anything with except check like ledger balances or something like that. And she's got a phone that's attached to the wall. Right. And they're having a lot of, and I'm like, Holy cow. You're so, and I, when I was looking at sort of the historical, you know, work statistics of productivity, they're saying we had an 80% increase in productivity between 1971 and 2011. 80%. And I'm like, that's insane. I mean, people, people should be, you know, rioting in the streets because of that. Like, are you kidding me? Like, if if the internet goes out at our office, we just go home because there's no point to even be there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if you're not a thousand percent more productive today, you should be angry about it. And the problem is the American workforce is not angry about it. They're just, you know, getting two or three hours of work done in their 10, 12 hour days and, you know, yeah. priding themselves on working a 60 hour work day.
1: Yeah, as I, as I read your book and I reflected on that, I, you know, I haven't gone back and done the research myself, but I trusted what you found about, you know, this productivity increasing 80% over that period. But what I, one of the things I reflected on is, Yes, productivity has gone up, but profitability has not in, you know, commensurate with productivity. So there's a view where I look at it and I go, well, yeah, we're all working. We're still working as much or even more and we're even more productive. So what the heck? But then when you look at the bottom line, that number hasn't increased at that same kind of rate.
0: Yeah, I think this is, this is an exact point. And a lot of people like look at this. With my book, and they think, "Well, this is you know, socialistic like BS." Uh-huh. I was looking at this from a very capitalistic standpoint. I was uh-huh. saying, "I want to squeeze productivity out of my people. I need to uh-huh. renegotiate basically with labor." So, yeah, uh, people are not getting any more done. They're literally doing two or three hours of work in an eight or ten hour day. It's yeah. it's a farce by them, yeah. and it's not serving uh, you know the, the bosses or anybody who's paying them. So both sides are being retarded about this, and I think. That that really is the problem, and this is, and I we didn't know this at the time, but when I because I didn't write the book for about a year after we were doing this, I just started writing some articles about what we were doing, Uh and I started to get like crazy shares on this. Like I would usually get like five shares of an article. I mean nobody knew who I was as an author, even you know being on Shark Tank, and then you know a good article would be fifty shares. Mm -hmm. The first one I wrote about the five hour workday got ten thousand social shares, and I'm like. Wow, this has struck a nerve with people. Everybody realizes they're not really doing work at work, yeah. <laughs> and they're wasting their time staying there. And but nobody is saying. So then, we, then I thought, okay, here we're gonna we're gonna write that book, and we're gonna put a book. The, the idea wasn't to sell a bunch of these books. We were gonna put a book in every paddleboard package that we sold out. And we, we we sell, so that would be you know five or ten thousand of these books would go in, and it would support you know what the brand of our company, which was that sort of work hard, play hard. And look, we're doing it. You know, we're walking yeah. the walk here with our company.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and you've just said it, but you say it quite eloquently in the book about you say what's really happening today is this. Knowledge workers are accomplishing two to three good hours of work in a day. They might be stretching it across an eight-hour day, but the truth is they're likely only accomplishing two to three hours of solid productive work. And I raised that with my with my mother-in-law, who just retired. She had a yeah. she had a government job. So <laughs> but she said, oh yeah, that's exactly what I did. She said, that's what our coworkers did. My coworkers did and we knew it, you know? And when I look at a book, like, I don't know if you've seen this one by Mason Curry. He wrote um, Daily Rituals, How Artists Work. It's a little different because it's talking about creatives and it's he includes some scientists, but he goes back and looks at people's biographies and their historical profiles, people like Charles Darwin or Benjamin Franklin or, you know, Joseph Heller, different Victor Hugo, And what he, and then he pieces together, what were their daily routines like? And what really stood out to me when I read that book, maybe 10 years ago was how many of these thinkers, they did only work two to five hours a day, but part of it was they were in their zone of genius. So they were passionate about what they were doing. They were good at it and they were, they did it for a long period. So in many cases for decades, but that was enough to create works of lasting cultural value. You know, it's not that people flog themselves and work 16, 20 hour days, you know, to create something like this.
0: I think but, that's a, that's a critical thing is because what we're doing with, and we're talking about artists, they have done this, you know, forever. It was always knowledge work that they were doing. Like this, right. is, this is hard thinking and doing that sort of hard, high level thinking. You can only do that a certain number of hours a day. Like yeah. you can work in a factory for 12 hours and your productivity sort of, you know, tails off a little bit. But if you're a, a genius writer or a genius artist, you can't have like your work tail off a little bit. You know, you've got to right. be super highly productive. And if you're not, you just leave. It's kind of like having the internet or not having the internet. Just don't even be there, right?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. And you, you say this too. I thought this was an interesting view and it, it resonates with me. Well, you say an eight-hour workday for a knowledge worker is like a 16-hour day for an industrial laborer. And also this insight about, from a strategic business perspective, you're actually hiring knowledge workers for the quality of their minds, right? The truth is, you say this says in the book, that you can have brilliant people in your office for five hours a day, but those most talented minds are actually working 24 hours a day for you. They're always thinking, always solving problems for your business. They're thinking about it in the shower, they're having ideas in the middle of the night, and when those genius minds are well taken care of and well rested, they are unleashed and explosively productive, you're not paying knowledge workers for eight hours a day of their time.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's where this, I, I didn't even understand. I just assumed when uh, we were switching this, that eight hours has been done forever. And then when I started, you know, a year later, started researching for the book, looking at the backstory, I was like, Holy cow. Like the eight hour day was invented basically in the early 1900s and there were, there were several movements doing it, but Henry Ford was the one who sort of did it at a grand scale initially and because he had, he, had, he had to solve a problem. He had like 70% turnover in his factories because you had the industrial revolution like, you know, ripped through society and nobody changed anything, right? So people were working in sort of workshops before that. All of a sudden they have an assembly line and this assembly line is a machine that can go 24 hours a day. So, you know, the bosses are like, this is great. We're just going to make these guys work longer and longer hours. And so people were trying to keep up with the machines and they were literally working 12, 14, 16 hour days which is what you'll see in a lot of, you know, if you go to China or whatever, you'll see stuff like this happening because the machines are expensive, people are cheap, right? But in America at the time, they were just like, okay, we need the humans to work longer. So they started pushing and pushing people to their physical limits. And in the the early 1900s, something like one half of 1% of the US population or US workforce uh, was being maimed or killed on the job, you know, every year. Like, and 70% turnover in these, like, places like you know ford motor company basically so he had to constantly retrain people and, and people were dying this was was not working and he yeah. sort of realized this is not sustainable this is where the eight-hour workday came about he said okay well we're going to do three eight-hour shifts of people on these machines the machines will go 24 7 but we'll do these three eight-hour shifts and just swap the people in and out and he, his productivity had gone up so he also at the same time so he shrunk the workday and he even shrunk the um they were going six days a week, eight hours a day at first, and then he tri- trimmed it back to five days a week, eight-hour days. But when he made that first change, he also doubled their wages. They were making $2.50 a day. He said, I'm going to pay you $5 a day because i realize realized all these productivity gains. I'm going to shrink your work day. And he did this as a strategic, you know, I want, I want the best workers out there. Kind of like what I was saying, these people are working at three times the speed of these people in my company. I just want those people. So yeah. that's what he did. Like a month later, he had like you know ten thousand people like standing in line to work at his his factory, Ford Motor Company. In that period of about twenty years, they went from something like seven percent market share in the U.S. auto market to sixty percent wow. because he basically stole the good workforce from all of the others. Because why are you going to work over there if they're paying double the wages and you got these livable hours? And that changed the world, and then everybody started doing that. So then, but that was essentially it was optimized for. People working alongside machines with physical labor. Fast forward to today, nobody's working in factories in America. I mean, they're not. We don't work like that. Like what you're talking about with like knowledge workers. Like eight hours is sort of a completely arbitrary number that has to do with factory floors and you know machinery. Like why would you possibly do that? So the five hour workday was really. And there's a lot of other people doing other stuff. But we're just thinking like, how should we work? Should change, right? We should optimize for today's world for sure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you, this is something that, you know, for anybody listening that hasn't been exposed to this idea before, or especially if you're an entrepreneur or you have the influence in your organization to potentially enact something like a five-hour workday, it's one of those things that at first I would imagine it can seem shocking, like, oh, that would never work here. Or, you know, it's just maybe for other types of businesses or whatever. But when you start looking at it closely, there's all kinds of benefits, I think. Now, I haven't enacted it in my own yet, but one of them is this. I love that you point out that this is effectively, well, first of all, you make the statement, time is the new money, which I thought was a, huge, was a huge insight. So maybe we can touch on that for a moment. But the other thing about this is that it's effectively giving people a raise right, without increasing your costs. So as an entrepreneur or as the owner or a leader of an enterprise, that's a very significant thing, even though it's a little distinct from time is the new money. But that you know somebody's hourly rate is effectively going up, and me as the owner of the business, I'm not increasing my costs at all. That's a win-win.
0: Yeah, I mean this is definitely sort of the magic of it for us. As we were a startup. I didn't, I couldn't just all of a sudden, you know, pay my workers a, a bunch more money if I wanted to increase productivity. But what I could do is I could take my existing stack staff and make them work at a faster rate. And we're a startup, so even when we went to the five-hour workday. Sometimes we would work a 12-hour day if a container was coming in or we had crunch time or something like that. But if you have people that work at twice the speed, this is why I think this can honestly work for any business and any business can benefit from it. Maybe you don't go to it year round because I'll touch on some things that we've learned since and there were some, there were some bad things that happened as well. But any company could you go to their workers and just say, hey, for three months, we're going to do this 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. We'll figure out how to get your job done or you're going to be fired you know, as productive more. And all of a sudden people will just start scrambling and they'll, they'll say, okay, we don't want to lose this. We're going to, we're going to do this. And I love working, walking out the door. So they're motivated. You've given them the motivation that basically an entrepreneur has, you can have this better life. If you just sort of work at a faster pace while you're there. And, uh, they're going to identify all these productivity tools. They're going to learn how to work faster. Basically, they're going to yeah. stop being on Facebook and doing fantasy football at work and whatever, because they're literally not going to have enough time and they're going to fear maybe getting fired if they don't. And, then at the end of the three months, you say, "Okay, we're going back to regular hours." Well, you've just trained your entire workforce to work at twice the speed. So, from a you know business owner's perspective, is holy cow, that was like summer efficiency training. You know that is perfect, and that can work for any company. I don't care if it's uh, you know in building buildings or something like that. A lot of people say this works fine for knowledge workers because that's kind of what it's designed for. But I think it works very well for you know the modern world because. You really need, a lot of things are being like rethought, like how we do stuff. Yeah. I was talking to, to uh, I was on the Adam Carolla show and he was uh, big enough, he was like a carpenter when he was young. He's like, ah, I'll work for this stuff, but it's uh-huh. not going to work for the, uh, the guy Ling, you know, like uh, the carpenter or whatever. And I said, no, okay, here's the, here's the example for you. If you have, if you've ever seen somebody drywall a house, like those guys that come in, they've got like stilts on, they've got like a hammer in each hand. I mean, these mm-hmm. guys are, it's crazy. Like they're, they're using like technology basically to put up drywall. But if you ever try to put up drywall yourself, you can do it. And then the tape and it's just going to take you 10 times longer. You yeah. bring these guys in and they can fly at this faster pace. So if you look at that and you say, okay, we want to apply five hour day principles to, uh, you know, putting up drywall. Well, the first step is you would get these guys with all these stilts and the, the hammers and, you know, training them up and all okay, so Now they can work at 10 times the speed of those other people. That's, that was the sort of tools. We started using tools, but now people are rethinking like, well, maybe we shouldn't use drywall in houses. Like yeah. Maybe you should just 3d print that thing. Like maybe drywall is just really a dumb idea. And so what the five hour workday does is it puts an unrealistic constraint. You say all of a sudden you only have this amount of time and you're going to get fired if you don't do it. So it, you start like pulling out like a really crazy ideas and testing them. And that's what startups do is they have constraints built into them. You got no cash. You got no people. You know, you've got no, nobody knows who you are. You have crazy constraints and it forces you to do, come up with creative things. That's how like industry giants get disrupted, right? So how do you take a company and put artificial constraints on? So that's really what the the key of the five-hour workday is about is an unrealistic constraint and, and just see how people react. Yeah.
1: No, I can see how that could have a very beneficial effect. Tell me, if you will, please, about how has this experiment unfolded and where are you today?
0: Yeah. So there there were some unintended circumstances here. So we're in the paddleboard industry. That was a booming industry. As I said, we were this fast growing company. Our revenues went from literally like, you know, quarter of a million a year to 1.3 million a year to 3.1 million a year to five five million a year to seven point five million a year. And um so breakneck speed, and everybody saw what we were doing, and they sort of copied basically. So, and in, in any product you're selling online, things just sort of get commoditized over time. So that business became more competitive, and just just a lot more people doing it, and the, sort of the newness of it wore off. Like initially, people were paddleboarding because they saw, you know, Elle McPherson in uh, you know People magazine like paddleboarding. Oh, that's cool. they will try paddleboarding. So it was it was driven by you know media. Trans is really, it was a fad. And I was worried like the poker chips because they were a fad too. Poker was on TV, it exploded and then it tailed off and it's that company's like one tenth the size of it was. And I was very paranoid about this. So we started to uh, cap out and then we started to come down and I was getting like very concerned. So there was that perspective uh, for me. I was much less willing to do experiments in the workplace when, when when that situation happened. But the other thing that happened at the exact same time I had nine employees at the time, and I lost four of them within a 90-day period. Wow. And this was in, I think, like 2017, early 2017, like the spring. And I lost my general manager, and I fired one of the people, but the other three quit. And, you know, one went to travel in a van across the country with her, her boyfriend. Another moved to Mexico to move, live in with uh, her boyfriend or something. Uh, these kids were all sort of at the young age where they were – they move around a lot anyways – and then another one went to sort of like a, an agency uh, type thing. But I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. These kids are in their 20s. They're getting paid very well at the time because once you're there for a couple of years and they have a five-hour workday and they're leaving. It doesn't make any sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we hadn't really had that problem before. And I was like, something's broke here. And when I really like analyzed what was going on, we had lost our company culture. We were a startup. And when you're a startup, it's kind of like going to war. And you're in the trenches, like, you know, and you're working together 12 hours a day, you know, weekends and all this stuff. And you form really close bonds with those people. Okay, you now you change the company and you all walk out the door at one o'clock. It's great for your personal life. It really opens up, you know, the other stuff, but you become much less close to those people you work with. And when people leave a company, it's, you kind of leave the people of the company, you know, yep. that's, that's more. So it's, it's really hard to leave a company if you, like your best friend works there, right? Yeah, for You sure. don't do that. And so we basically we broke the company culture by going away from a startup and at the same time was, things were coming down and i'm just like you know either they you know when we started the five-hour workday people had earned it that were there and so they were still working and now we had hired on people that had never known any other workday mm-hmm. and so there was a bit of entitlement there was we lost the company culture and then the revenue started to go down so i said you know screw this we're going to we're going to change it we're going to tweak i want to go to a startup again but I, I love the, you know, the, how this is forcing people to think. So we did, started to do four summer months, which is when we did 70% of our revenue. So from June 1st to the end of September, we did the five-hour workday then, uh, which is sort of counterintuitive, but I want to squeeze people. I want to say, it's crazy times. I'm putting an unrealistic constraint on you. You got to figure out how to survive. And then in the off season, when we got much less to do with just shipping paddleboards and answering phone calls and stuff like that, where we do more of our project work, I want us to go to, to startup hours. So that's we made it a sort of a hybrid of those two. And that's what we've been doing the last, I mean, 2017, 2018, 2019. Coming into this year, we had some some other issues. The, the paddleboard business sort of continued to decline a little bit. We, uh, we got in some sort of finance issues, basically. Mm-hmm. And so there were other concerns. And then the coronavirus hit. And so, and even going into the coronavirus, I was kind of like, we got to sort through our financial issues. Like we can't, uh, you know, be having money problems and I can't be saying, okay, let's, you know, go to a five hour work day for the summer. So yeah. I said, we got to, we got to tighten down. We're going to skip it this year. So that's what we did. The coronavirus hit. We had one of our businesses is an event company, Tower Beach Club. That went to zero overnight. We saw everything was going down. So we dropped the price of our paddle boards about 30%. We got off of Amazon almost completely and we just said okay we're going to be the true direct to consumer company and all of a sudden sales like went up 400% like overnight and then 3 weeks later the coronavirus effect hit the coronavirus was already already in process but we didn't nobody had the uh, the notion that this was actually going to boost some businesses mm-hmm. and getting outside on a paddleboard was one of those and our e-bikes was another one so both of those businesses took off so now we've doubled revenue this year you know everything is going in a good way and we've, we've skipped the five hour workday. We're not on it right now, but now I'm going to layer it back in and I'm thinking, how can I do this such that we can, when we're on the downward trend and we got to work more, you know, cause sometimes you just have to throw brute force at things. Yeah, We can do that. And then how can I reward people when we do? So I'm thinking, and I haven't even told the staff this yet, but I'm thinking what we're going to do is we're going to change the, the months from August, September, October, November. So those four months, so it's kind of the tail end of our season, but part of our, like, uh, you know, project season, because yep. that's going to work, work more. And we're not like not working when it's when we need to be working, but also we're going to do that based on whether our revenues went up the previous year or went down. So if revenues increase, that's the bonus. That's the Christmas bonus is yep. we have the five hour workday, and everybody that was in the company at that time earned it every year. So that's another little, I'm looking at this as sort of an experiment yep. and that's the next tweak we're going to do to this experiment.
1: Right on. I I really admire that, that, um, you know, willingness to, first of all, face reality and then to respond to it in a way that uh, something other than just curling up in the fetal position,
0: (laughs) you know? Yeah. Another thing was this, with this sort of five hour work day, because the book got a lot of press, like we didn't Mm -hmm. really expect that, you know, we hired a PR agency and we were going to try to do that because it aligned with our brand, but it ended up getting press in like, you know, 20 countries. I mean, I did five or six like national TV interviews here in the US. I mean, it, was, it got a lot of press. We didn't sell a lot of books. Uh, press doesn't equate to selling books, apparently, but we got a ton of press for this. And you kind of fall in love with the, the idea that it was your idea, too. And then when the company was going down, it was kind of like, well, we can't get away from the five-hour workday because that was my idea. We need to stake our belief on that. So that, that was a tough thing for me, just my ego to sort of get around to, is saying, you know, it might work. It might not work. I need to stand back and be objective about this. So no. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do that now. Yeah,
1: no, that's, that's great. Well, before we transition, a couple more questions in this section. The first one is, it's a little bit maybe off the topic or maybe it's not, but in the book, you mentioned that something that has served you well in your time as an entrepreneur are lessons you've learned from, I think it's Vishen Lakiani. At Mindvalley. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What have you learned from him that has uh, been of benefit to
0: you? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm mean, going to have to <laughs> go back. Uh, what, did, what did we say in the book there? Because, you know, there's a lot of things. I don't know exactly which things come from which people. With the Mind Valley guy, a lot of his stuff was, was company culture. I remember when we were doing that, one of the things we, when we rolled out the five-hour work to here's one thing for sure, was this idea of... Um, gratitude. Mm -hmm. And I think it was either the guy with the mind valley thing or another guy that wrote the five minute journal. Are you familiar with that book? Oh yeah. I forget his name. He's like a tall Russian guy kind of, but it was this idea of gratitude and the expression of gratitude on a daily basis. So we started having the whole company on our, we had a Slack channel that was called daily gratitude and everybody was supposed to, when they got up, they would, you know, list three things that they were grateful for every day Mm -hmm. shared to the, to the company. So instead of like personally journe- journaling this, we were just sharing that. So it was getting everybody's uh, you know, mind in the right place. And a lot of this was, we were at the time, we were experimenting with wor- workplace design, basically. Mm-hmm. Like we were experimenting with the workday. People were walking out the door earlier, but we also wanted to, think, we, we also rolled out a 5% uh, profit sharing at the time. And then we, and we had people vote every month on who they shot should get the profit sharing. Some of this went really badly And then we did the daily gratitude because we thought that would get people the sort of the science on it that we heard was that if you, for a month's period, if you get up every day and say three things that you're grateful for, write it down, uh, your happiness basically bumps up by like 25, 30%. And I'm saying we're managing, you're managing people's energy, right? You're trying to get knowledge workers to do good work. They need to be in a happy place, basically. Like if, uh, you know, so-and-so just broke up with her boyfriend uh, she's a mess. She's not getting any work done. You know, like those social things get. So, how do you get those people happy? So, we were trying all of these things at the same time. I don't know if that one came from, how do you say his name? Vishkin?
1: I think it's a Vishan Lakiani.
0: Yeah. And, uh, so I'm not sure which ones exactly came from him. I went to a conference. Uh, it was the under, Internet Underground Conference, and his mm-hmm. wife was there, and we were on a little project, so we were out doing something. So maybe it was something she told me they were doing or something.
1: Right on. Do you, do you guys still do the gratitude thing?
0: Uh, we don't. We don't. So when we got away from the five-hour workday, we had sort of revenues come down. A lot of the, those experiments, they were sort of Luxury experiments is what yeah. I would call them. So yeah. a lot of that we, we got rid of. We got rid of the profit sharing. We also did uh, two all-company uh, trips every year. We haven't done one of those in about a year. Uh, we're just about the point to getting back to those. And we also did something called Tower Tuesdays, which every Tuesday we would get the, you know, like after work, because we were out at one, we would get the whole company together. Like, you know, it started once a week, and then we're like, well, that's just too much. We don't want to be around these people like that much. It seems <laughs> it's know. a lot, right? Um, You got to have a really tight company culture to get everybody together. Uh, So then we started doing that every two weeks, then every month and uh, that sort of faded out. So there were experiments.
1: No, I, I love that. I love that spirit of entrepreneurialism and, and testing. So, okay. Well, with your permission, let's go ahead and transition to the enlightening lightning round. So again, this is a variety of questions. My aim is for the most part to ask the question and stand aside. I might, Tug a little bit on an answer here or there, but you're welcome to answer as long as you want. Okay. First question. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Adventure. All right. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's famous question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: With, with that one, I, I think, and this really goes to our, our company, what we're about is you don't get what you pay for. I mean, people say you get what you pay for. Mm -hmm. That's not true anymore. You know, you get what marketing you pay for today. I mean, it used to be like you could use price to sort of judge things and, you know, whether it was quality or not, because that is the, the assumption that everybody's using the same distribution channels to get it to you. Now, when distribution channels have changed and you got one person using this distribution channel, somebody going direct to consumer or something like that, that gets thrown out the window. You don't get what you pay for anymore. And the problem is that marketer and people have been tra- indoctrinated into you get what you pay for. So to the point where, you know, luxury companies trying to sell you a diamond or a watch, they just say, well, what should we charge for this? And they just say, well, we're going to charge $10,000. Well, those guys charge $10,000. Let's charge $15,000. Yeah. And then, you know, some brilliant marketer says, we're going to charge 80000 for that watch. <laughs> And so, and people don't really understand that. They still think like, oh, well, that $3,000 purse is better than that $20 purse. We don't live in that world anymore. Mm -hmm. So you're paying for the marketing BS that you're getting for most of the stuff you pay for. And if you want to be basically take advantage of uh, sort of globalization, you need to understand the distribution channels of the products that, that you buy and really look is this a good product or is it a bad product? And, and don't look at price so much um, because it's, it's misleading. And it's too bad because that was really easy if you could just figure out which yeah. ones are good from the price.
1: Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. Okay. Question number three, if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: I've always been a big fan of Bob Marley. So like one love. i I think uh, i think the 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 sad thing about bob marley is now people like assume they like look at bob marley and they say okay this guy was all about you know marijuana and you know this and but really like he was like sort of a revolutionary person on like bringing the races together and the world together and that has all got like you know sort of set aside and people are just like he was just about smoking pot which is the stupidest thing ever he was like an amazing dude that, uh, you know, really was about changing the world on the level of like Martin Luther King. And everybody just thinks like, you know, he's, he's a pot smoker.
1: Yeah. Question number four. What book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: We see. I really like Richard Branson's books. Uh, like, I mean, there's, and there's a couple that are kind of the same type of book, you know, like Finding Your Virginity is a book that I really like. That would probably be the one that i given most. Uh, the Five Hour Workday. Uh, that had a, or not the five hour workday, excuse me, the, the four hour work week had a, had a big impact on my life. So I've shared that with my entrepreneurial friends. Really the five hour workday was applying that to entire organizations. Uh, yeah. But a lot of the the principles in that, you know, are the same, you know, most of the books I, I read are for business purposes. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I read much less where, Oh, I got this great novel. Yeah. You know. What are you so reading? they mostly currently? business books. Yeah, You know, I don't, I'm not reading anything. What is the book? I have one book that I've, I don't know what I've been reading. Nothing comes off the top of my head. Uh, okay. you know, mostly it's Ink Magazine, Fast Company Magazine, those types yep. of things.
1: Right on. All right. Question number five is about travel. So you travel a lot. You've traveled a lot in your life. What's one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: I mean, the, the biggest thing I've learned is to like the things that go wrong with travel, right? Like you mm-hmm. can actually get around those. Like you know, you can you can get a money belt. You can you can travel in like very dangerous places if you do it correctly, right? Like if you scan your passport, uh, you know, get some money in you know other accounts where if your credit cards get stolen or something like that, and then you can all this it frees you up to to travel to places that you wouldn't go usually because oh that place is too dangerous or I might get mugged or this might happen. That's the biggest thing is the preparation in how you prepare for that and have sort of, uh, you know, redundancy built in and backup plans Mm -hmm. because then you can travel and be safe. And this is something that you apply to business as well. It's it's like a lot of people think like the entrepreneurs are like the risk takers and doing stuff like this. But you can actually do that if you set up these, these sort of just fail safes. So that's... That makes your travel more enjoyable to me. Maybe yeah. a lot of people would think that hey, you're worrying about just stupid stuff. Just go and have fun. Nope. You set up the ground rules and then go have fun.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. Question number six. What's something you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Started or stopped doing. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, There was a guy named James Clear. Do you know James Clear? He's an author. Yeah,
1: Atomic you. Atomic Habits.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one day I saw him at a conference or whatever. And we had some beers, and he was talking on, on stage too. And one of the things he was talking about, I think, was like flossing your teeth or something. And so I just started for the first time, like flossing my teeth, you know, like on a regular basis. He's like, "You're either a flosser or you're not a flosser," and you can really sort of change your personal opinion about yourself. And you just, I think, his the premise of his book was you, you do it for 17 days in a row, and then all of a sudden you see yourself as a flosser. So that's a really like trivial thing, but. Uh, you know somebody with stronger willpower could apply that to like a lot of areas of their life
1: right on all right, thank you for that. Question number seven what's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: I mean right now, it's a tough time in America, right so i I think the thing that I wish Americans knew is you know truly what makes America great, like not the slogan, not the not the racist undertones of this, but What really does make America great? Is it that we're the the biggest economy? Well, no, you have like China's almost as big as economy. But if, you know, Chinese become wealthy, they move to the US, right? Is it because we have this incredible military? You know, you know, you have Russia as an incredible military, but nobody wants to live, you know, in Russia. I mean, Russians move here, right? Is it, you know, so all of these, these things that we hang our hat on or that they, you know, the Republic, I don't want to get overly, you know, political here. But I think the things that we think are great about our country, who cares? They're just sort of of an offshoot of what truly does make this, you know, great, which is essentially the, the democratic process coupled with the, you know, the Bill of Rights. So, you know, you're going to have this sort of mob rule, which everybody is scared of, but that's how the democratic process works. But you got to have an underlying, you know, catch that okay, we're not going to break these things, and once you have those. And, you know, few countries in the world had that before the U.S. had that. And some have copied and some have failed. But if you have those two things together, it creates a self-correcting entity. So we can be a country that is, you know, founded with slaves and then you can abolish slavery. Like you can get through that. You can work through that. And then, you know, a black man can be president of the United States. Same thing. You can have, you know, women like not have the right to vote. And now, you know, a woman is potentially going to be, you know, a vice president. So there's a self-correcting nature of that. Yeah. And that self-correcting nature leads to having the greatest economy, you know, having the greatest military and those things. And we're getting too caught up in, you know, what makes us great and our flag and this stuff. And we're going to give up the, like, really what does make the country great. Yeah. You know, you don't want to lose those, those protections and those, those critical things. You know, diversity makes America great, to be perfectly honest.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work?
0: It's not necessarily my strong suit, you know, and I I sort of learned this. I'm I'm divorced. Uh, You know, I've never had uh, good relationships or whatever. I have great friends with with people, but it's not my strong suit. I think I'm much more of an analytical thinker and stuff like that. And so an interesting thing happened in our company on the way we were growing uh, growing the company up. So I finally matched myself with somebody. I made this girl, her name was Allison uh, Dundovich. I made her general manager of the company, very young girl, but she had an interest in, you know, HR and people and company culture and stuff like that. A lot of the stuff we did, the, the vision lanky like stuff mm-hmm. that we did was sort of her idea. And so when me and her got together and, you know, it was, it was almost like the father and mother of a company running. And so she, and, and that made the company much more successful and it made the people. So you need to have sort of a strategic direction and sort of these business chops, but you also need to have the, the personal side. And, you know, we, and we've sort of lost that in our business. And I think when you lose that, uh, you sort of lose your way. You can be pretty good with just sort of your strategic and your analytical stuff, but you need to marry that with, sort of the, the, the personal part. And that's how you make magic happen in companies. And I think that's kind of why a lot of times there's like co-founders of companies mm-hmm. um, is because it's very rare for those that duality be within one person. And I think with myself, I've uh, sort of identified that that is, that is definitely a weakness. And if I can bring that in, that makes the the team stronger. And I think you got to think about your personal relationships in the same way. Like, yeah. What are you good at? and sort of match that with somebody, somebody else. And then, you know, you're going to, you raise children and they're going to have, they're going to be more uh, balanced, you know?
1: Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Well, thank you for that, that answer. Okay, and the final question here in the Enlightening Lightning Round is about money, which is what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do
0: with it? I mean, I think the, the biggest thing about money is that money isn't real. And I don't think people understand that, that it, because if I learned this while I was sort of, you know, that backpacking trip, you know, if I go back to Australia, three months, that entire backpack trip, I think I spent $7,000 for a three month, you know, vacation and that's the flights and that's our, you know, the hostels we stayed in and You could have done that for half of that. I mean, we were what were considered like high rolling backpackers. Like we, you know, we would take a limo to the casino, you know, when we were in Florida of uh, Australia, and you know, we were going out and eating out and doing stuff like that. Now, if I go with you know some buddies to you know Vegas or whatever, you can spend that in in a weekend, right? Mm. Oh yeah. And that was a life changing experience. And you know, your bottle service, you know, at the, the Las Vegas pool is fun, but it's not life changing. So you make more money. You spend it on stupid stuff and everybody's sort of, you know, chasing that. And they're, they're essentially slaves to money. And that's a really dumb thing to be because at a, at a certain point you have to realize this, it's not real. Like it's not real. Like, and if you, it's, it's so weird. And this is what you, you can, I think you can only get, um, by traveling around the world and seeing, I was in South Africa and we were traveling in the the townships. Have you been, um, to the townships in South Africa?
1: I've not yet been to South Africa.
0: OK, so South Africa is very interesting because, uh, like, you know, and uh, the Cape Town is the town we were in. And on one side you have, like, you know, America's Cup and it's just like, you know, super nice and ritzy and stuff like that. And you walk one street and a lot of towns are like this. But then it's like, I mean, it's crazy, like crackheads everywhere and just like dangerous. And then the townships are sort of these encampments where they put it's just, uh, you know, basically black people. It's like it's like a 50 percent unemployment rate there. And, you know, the kids are playing with, you know, like dirt and sticks and just running around, but they're pretty happy, you know? And I was this, and I was taking a tour, like a touristy tour of this thing. And my, my, my tour guide was, you know, we we're I'm sort of chatting, you know, sort of a lot of downtime there. And he was like, oh, you're from America, whatever. And he, and we got to talking about family or something like that. I'm like, uh, I'm divorced. Yeah. And he's like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He was like, nah, no, it, it's not a big deal. And divorce happens in America. It's like, you know, 60% of marriages end up in divorce. And he's like, you know, he's hitting me on the back going, huh, that's funny, that's funny. And I'm like, no, that's, that's what it is. And he's like, there's no way. What are you talking about? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's pretty common, I think, in most of the Western world. 50% of marriages end in divorce. And he's like, he wouldn't believe me, right? Wow. And I said, well, what's the divorce rate here? And he's like, well, 1 in 20, 1 in 20 probably, 5%. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. So you got 50% unemployment here. <laughs> You've got... <laughs> it just, I mean, just crazy conditions and the people are happy and the divorce rate is really low. Why is that? You know, and it, that's because money isn't real. <laughs> you know? In my, my opinion, it's just, you know, it's, it's how you look at it. It's how you compare yourself to other people in the environment you're in. And I think yeah. people, people look to money and they think this is going to solve a lot of problems. It makes just as many problems as it solves. And yeah. um, so that's a big thing for me.
1: Right on. Well, thank you for that answer. Okay, so the final, the very final question here is kind of a gimme. It's, uh, if people want to learn more from you, or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: You know, I would definitely read the book, The Five-Hour Workday. I think you can learn a lot about, uh, you know, our company and sort of, you know, what we did there. I mean, you can take a look at the, the products that we sort of brought into the world, which is Tower Paddle uh, even the buypokerchips.com. I mean, all of those products, whether you know it or not, they will improve your life. <laughs> whether you buy it from my company or another company in that space, those types of products, I think can absolutely add to people's uh, life. You know, I'm not too big on Twitter. You know, you can probably find me on Facebook if you search my name, but I'm not I'm not really like a social media influencer. I don't really strive to be, you know, but you could probably find me. But more importantly, I would say follow the companies. We look at like uh, at Tower Beach Club, that kind of encompasses our uh, tower paddle boards, tower electric bikes. You can uh, see our social media stuff on there. If you want to get in touch with us, just go to any of those websites and just email the, uh, you know, whoever the customer service email and it'll get to me. I and mean, we're a very small company right now. We have, there's four people in our company.
1: Right on. Okay. Thank you for that. The, um, as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and, and share your knowledge and experience with with everybody listening I've gone online to Kiva.org, and I've made a $100 microloan to a woman in Liberia, a female entrepreneur named Louvania, who will use this money to buy charcoal and rice and milk and soap that she will then sell. She's married. She has five kids. So this will improve the quality of life for her, her family, and people in her community. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that.
0: Oh, cool. thank you, madam. It's, it's an honor for me to be on your show. Well, I know
1: we're just about at the end
0: of our interview here.
1: One thing that you say you say writing articles and being a thought leader is one of my favorite parts of marketing. It's kind of, to me, interesting. I know content marketing is a thing. What's your routine like when it comes to writing?
0: Well, you know, our, all of the businesses that, that I'm in are driven. They're sort of search engine optimization, optimization uh, businesses. So you're creating, creating great content. Like with the, even with the poker chip, my whole strategy here was you create a library that sells stuff. Mm You educate people, you educate the customers, the people that are in poker, and they're going to say, this dude educated me. I like him. I'm going to buy something from him, um, is essentially. So to me, that is, you know, good marketing. Like, you know, when I was studying marketing in school, you know, and I would go home and try to explain to my mom, you know, what I was doing she would be like, oh God, where did we go wrong? Why, <laughs> why did our son become a marketer? I mean, marketing has such a dirty connotation and for yeah. good, right? Like she thought I was going to like, you know, robo call her. And <laughs> yeah.
1: Send her some direct <laughs> mail or something.
0: Back in the day. And she's just like, yeah, they're ruining the world. And my view is that just like business, you can do it for good or bad and marketing, you can do it for for good. There's good ways to do marketing. Like in our companies now, we almost like this year, I think we spent 0.4% of our revenue on advertising. I refuse to, to advertise now because I think I think Google is becoming a monopoly and they're taking 50% of the revenue and consumers are just getting screwed and they're just sucking all the profit out of that part of the business. Amazon, I don't want to sell on Amazon anymore. It's They're just sucking all of the profit out of it. It's We've, we've got these really unhealthy things going on in the world of, of buying stuff and yeah. I'm sort of opting out of that because I'm anti that marketing. Like some of the, the other companies, specifically in like the paddleboard industry, there's companies that spend more on marketing, on advertising than they do on the product. And oh. to me, that is, is, that's just insulting on so many levels, uh, like to, to human intelligence and to just like, we're, we're going to manipulate you and we're going to manipulate you to such an extent that you're going to pay more for us to, to, to tell you about the product than what you're actually buying this gets back to the, that question you asked about, you know, you don't get what you pay for right Right. What, yeah. what is the thing that you believe? I believe that deeply. Like it's, it's crazy to me that we're, we're in that world where it's, it's such the illusion. The smoke show is more important than the hat is bigger than the cowboy or whatever they say that. Yeah. Um, and that just, uh, that, that turns me off. And I think what content marketing can be in its truest form is can be, you know, education that gets your, get your message out there. So you're, you're helping these people and you're also by helping them, you know, you're helping them find out about your company and to, to, to sell them a product. And yeah. I think that's, that's, that's the, the highest form of marketing in my opinion. Yeah.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that ethos of give before you ever ask, right. And the law of reciprocity I think is a real thing. Sure, and so forth. So, and it's
0: a it's a long term world. Like people people don't realize that because things move yeah. so fast now. Yeah. And I think, in my opinion, the brands that are going to be along around like twenty years from now are not going to be the you know direct to consumer brand that raises you know hundred million dollars and pumps in a bunch of you know dollars into into ads and you know sells you some some widget that you can buy in fifty other places. I think it's it's the slow growth companies are going to be the great companies of the future that are authentic you know brands. Yeah. and i think I think you can have a slow play strategy in in today 's world and be very successful with that and even more successful because I think at some point people are going to clue in to we're being manipulated yeah you know?
1: yeah and the and the other thing is I you know as this conversation unfolds that uh, i don 't know that I'd seen before it really is also about the power of relationships that again this is not a transactional thing, but like you're saying it's a long term viewpoint, and when you're giving to someone you're building a relationship and that counts for a lot
0: yeah i think that's a, that's the way the world is going to go and because we have you can contact anybody like you know you can get in touch with me i can get in touch with you we don't even know each other yeah um, and there's there's no barrier to that and when you have that people are going to do that and relationships become like 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 very important and you want to curate those and that's really what building a business is it's just a snowball of relationships that you build yeah. and that, that's what a brand is
1: yeah for sure tell me about the process of this book becoming a reality what was what was the moment you knew you were going to write it and then what process did you follow how did you outline it how did you manage your time what were your working sessions like who else was involved like anything and everything about the book going from an idea to a, a printed and, and and
0: digital reality. Now, this is probably going to be something contrary to what you usually hear, because you deal with some like hardcore authors. I don't consider myself an author. Like, I struggled with English. Like, it took me like five, six hours to write, you know, a five paragraph essay in mm-hmm. high school. It, this was not a skill that I was good. I was good in the, in the math and science and stuff like that, but English was not my strong suit. And I would have never thought I would write a book. I mean, that would be crazy, crazy talk. Because I was writing those articles, I could stomach doing an article. And we were doing that because it was, it was marketing. It was getting our message out there and you know, bringing people to us. We started to have success with that. And I thought, you know, probably we could write a book about that. But I'm like, God, I don't want to write a book. I have no interest in writing a book. That sounds miserable to me. And I was at a conference. I think it was the Mastermind, Mastermind Talks conference. And one of the speakers was Tucker Max. The guy who wrote... I hope
1: uh, they serve beer. uh, beer. beer.
0: Yeah. And then then the movie. And he was was talking about this company that he started called Book in a Box. It was kind of a stupid name. And I'm just like, so he does... And it was like, at the time, it was like 15 grand. And they would basically do a bunch of interviews with you. And they would transcribe that overseas and bring it back. And they would have like real people who wrote books, like interview you. And first, they would have like a guy that did like the... You know how movies have like an arc? Yep. Um, this guy would, he would collect all of the knowledge that you had in your head. Typically it was like, you know, CEOs of businesses and stuff like that. And okay, here's the knowledge you have. Here's how we make an arc to that. And then, uh, so they set the, um, sort of the outline of the book and then you interview with another guy that sort of pulls out your information Then they transcribe that stuff overseas, bring it back. And an editor like, uh, you know, puts that down and then sort of edits it down to good words. And then they go back and forth with you and this is the company he, he he built. And the reason that he built this company was he was he was like saying, okay, you've got this history of how many people have lived on the world, right? Mm-hmm. All of these brilliant people. And a lot of times, a lot of this knowledge was not recorded, right? Yep. And the only time it ever got recorded is when, when two things like dovetailed perfectly. Like this person had this, this expertise, knowledge, or experience in life, and he was also interested in writing, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. That's where the, the history of the world comes from, and the advance of society, and the, like the written that somebody else could take that book a hundred years later, and then you know make some other advance. Those two things had to dovetail. So he's like, "That's craziness, right?" Yeah. Like he wrote, you know, about serving beer in hell. He didn't have anything to write about. He still wrote a book. <laughs> he sold a bunch, so he's a good writer. He didn't have really a good idea, right? So he was like, "I'm going to bring these two things together." And I thought this is brilliant. Like, this is a world-changing idea. Like, go get those people that have no interest in writing a book, but actually have something to say, get them together with the, the book people. And so I, I start talking to him. I'm like, it's only 15 grand? That seems cheap. Like, you should raise your prices. Like, that seems incredibly great, because that's even like a tax write-off. And he's like, yeah, here's how the process goes. And I'm like, okay, so I got to do two phone interviews here, and then you know six or seven more interviews here, and then a couple weeks of the editing." And you got a guy to do the cover work? I'm like, sold. This sounds great. And here's what I'm going to write the book on because I've been writing these articles. So that's how it came to fruition. There wasn't a master plan to do the five-hour workday and then come out with a book. It was just the coincidence of events that happened around that, that I said, for 15 grand, I can start putting this book in. I'm surely going to sell. My break even on that is I got to sell another, you know, 100 paddle boards to people that read this book and then that are interested enough in this that they tell their friend. You know, because just having a paddleboard isn't that noteworthy, but there's this crazy little company in California that's doing a five-hour workday. This is nuts. Yeah. And then we're going to sell more paddleboards was was my thought. And that's how the book came to fruition. So it was the lazy man's way to write a book. But in my opinion, that's the five-hour workday way to write a book. Oh, yeah. This book is actually, you know, pretty good. Yeah. I mean, and they got it out. And once they got the book out, we had like the, the sort of most of the content in there. I was, because I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Richard Branson's books are some of my favorite because he li- puts a lot of him, his, his self, his life into it. You yeah. what got him to that point and what he got into that. So at the end of that, it, I talked with the, you know, the guy and I became really good friends with the, um, the guy who was the main editor on my book. Uh-huh. And I said, I'd like to put some of these personal stories into this book because, you know, why we came to that decision. It was basically based on this childhood, like, you know, thing here. And so that was, uh, we, we sort of, you know, added, added to that to make it more of like an, an interesting read. So that was interesting. And that, the guy who wrote that book actually years later, maybe two years ago, I started another company called nomiddleman.com, uh-huh. which is an aggregation of all of the, the best direct-to-consumer companies in the world. We're building basically the anti-Amazon. And it's, we don't take any share of profits, but we put them all in there and make it easily searchable. You want to find direct-to-consumer shoes. Okay, here's the three to five companies to look at. And he was a big fan of the five-hour workday and that concept. And he was also a fan of this disintermediate mediation of these, these these strong middlemen. And so I hired him on to, to help me work with that. that. That project is still live and it's up there, but he's off doing, he had a baby, he's off doing other stuff now. So it's kind of in hibernation right now. But right on. You know, five, 10 years from now, we may... Uh, that may be something that you, you hear about. Yeah. com.
1: That's awesome. Well, good. Well, given your experience and not having seen yourself as an author, but having written a book nevertheless, what advice or encouragement would you leave anyone listening with who is interested to finish their own creative project, whether they're in the middle of it and haven't managed to cross the finish line or they haven't even started because maybe they're, they don't know what they don't know or they're afraid to for some reason. What do you say to them?
0: Yeah, I think... If you have like something to say, and this is like when I, when I talked to Tucker and went to him, and his, uh, you know, he handed me off basically to you know one of the other guys there. The big thing is they were they were just not like taking everybody that wanted to write a book. Basically, mm-hmm. they they were only going to do books about people that actually had something to say. So I would say that's the first thing you should really ask yourself: Is this sort of a vanity project to say that I have written a book, or do you have something to say? And it's kind of like in business, the same thing. It's like you're just doing it for the money. You're not going to be successful. It's not going to be that good. There's going to be a lot of crap that happens. You're probably not going to finish this, right? With the book, I think it's it's, it's the same thing. Like, if you really have something to say. And if you do, even if you're not willing to write it, like, you're not going to give a year of your time, use a book service like, uh, I forget, they changed their name from book in a box to something else now.
1: Describe. Um,
0: Describe. Okay. Yeah. So, and a lot of people would say, well, yeah, like, I had a lot of people, especially in my interviews, that because I explained how I wrote that book and they're like, well, you're not an author that you cheated. And I'm like, well, that's, that's crazy. Like, uh, you know, it was, it was, I had something to say and it yeah. got written. Uh-huh. I think that's like, uh, you know, using an electric bike is cheating. No, it still gets people out on bikes. It gets people yeah. out enjoying the world. Like, that's crazy. Don't let that discount it. So if you have something to say, by all means, use something like that, especially if you're a busy dude, like that is the best path to go. Now on the other side, if you're just an incredible writer, and, you know, I know a lot of these people that are just like, you know, I would spend five or six hours writing my five hour essay. They would come in a half an hour before class and just whip something out and get an A on it. I'm like, my God, what are you like a magician? That is like a magic <laughs> skill. Yeah. If you have that skill, you should be writing stuff and you should, you're a writer. And what you need to do is you need to go out and force yourself to experience life and then write about those experiences. Even if you have nothing to write about, yeah. you have a duty to go try some shit and then write about that experience because you have a way to bring that that into the world and you, you got to force that you'd have something to say if you're a writer because that's that's it's like a musician like if you're an incredible musician but you, you know you don't really have the lyrics or whatever you should force that yeah don't don't hide be my advice light. to writers yeah, yeah don't, exactly. don't
1: hide that under a bushel <laughs> yeah right yeah well Stephan, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. And again, I'm grateful to you for making time to talk with me. I'm grateful that you wrote this book, that you're doing the work you're doing. I don't know when or where our paths will cross again next, but I suspect they will. And I'll definitely let you know when this podcast releases and uh, stay in touch somehow, so.
0: Awesome, awesome. It was great to have a conversation with you, Brian. Despite
1: living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people whether it's in the developed world where we're dealing with depression anxiety addiction divorce jobs we hate relationships that don't work or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education or who live in conflict zones there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for if you're one of those people i invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com i've created Life's best practices breakthrough coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing. I've developed a 36 week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life. Explore life's big questions. Create answers for yourself in community. Get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at BrianMiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.